the results of NYSE Open 1 and a special mystery guest on episode 26 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 26 of So Many Insane Plays, our vintage New York Stack Exchange Open 1 recap and analysis. Today, Stephen and I will discuss the inaugural NYSE Open 1 and its significance and implications. We'll discuss the changing vintage metagame, the tournament structure, and its sustainability, as well as the future of vintage in North America and beyond. We'll also break down the top eight, and Stephen will share his tournament report. We'll touch on the announced Eternal Weekend, M14 Rules Changes, GP Vegas, as well as a special mystery guest interview that you won't want to miss. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hey, everyone. As we go through the show, if you have any comments or questions, please tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or you can leave us feedback at Eternal Central, MTGCast, or themanadrain.com. Steve, we couldn't start our announcements without talking about the Eternal Weekend, which has been announced since our last show for November 1st out in Philadelphia. It's very exciting that we finally have confirmation from Wizards on what they had in mind for the Eternal Weekend, and this is going to house the Vintage and Legacy Championships on Saturday and Sunday. It's being hosted and run by a TO that's popular in the Vintage community, one Nick Koss in association with Card Titan. And Nick, if you don't know him, is a great TO. He has great things planned. I've talked to him, Steve. You've talked to him. I think we're both very excited about what they've got in mind. It's it's bittersweet. I mean, I'm 98% happy with this, but it is sad to think that we might not be going to Gen Con again. Yes, I, I see your point. Gen Con is such an event that it really is a shame that it won't be there. And if that becomes the standard, it will be something of a loss, speaking personally and for the community. I'm still going to be going to Gen Con this year. There's still going to be plenty of magic to be played, and they actually have a special 20th anniversary event. But let's talk about the Eternal Weekend. Nick doesn't have all of the details laid out for us, but if you go to his website, you can see that he is planning some just crazy amounts of prize support. What is his website? So he will have it in the show notes, but the the group is cardtitan.com, and the Eternal Weekend is posted on their website there. We'll put a link in our show notes directly to the Eternal Weekend details. They've got details about time and place and cost and prize, but it's not all fleshed out yet. And we have some interesting new details that aren't yet up on his website as of this moment that we can share with our audience. Namely, in addition to the Vintage Art Prize, which is another reinterpretation of Ancestral Recall, we also have a Legacy Prize this year, which is a reinterpretation of the Wasteland. So we've got some awesome cards coming up for the painting prizes for first place. Did we just break that announcement? That's right. This is the this is kind of an exclusive announcement. It hasn't been announced anywhere else yet that Wasteland is the prize for the Legacy Championship. But in addition to that, one thing that is, I think, a significant improvement over past Eternal Championships is Nick's prize structure is both great in denomination and in how far down it goes into the final placing players. He has literally planned for both events over $10,000 in prizes. Wow. Going all the way down to 64th place. Oh, holy. This is going to be a gigantic turnout for this. 
I certainly expect so. For those of you who haven't had the luxury of playing in one of Nick's events out in the Northeast, he knows how to run these kind of events. He knows how to make them smooth and very rewarding for the attendees. It sets a good precedent going forward. And, you know, in addition to that great prize structure, he has lots of other fun events planned. He has lots of other ancillary prizes planned. For example, he's giving away at least $1,000 to at least probably the top eight placing budget players. So he's got $1,000 in prizes at least just set aside for budget finishers, the top eight budget finishers. And the definition of budget, according to him and according to the event, is no power nine, no time vault, workshop, bazaar, mana drain, or imperial seal. So if you're looking to compete in a budget perspective in that event, that prize is available to you in addition to however you might normally place in the event. So if you win the thing, you're going to get the painting and you're going to get the budget prize too. You have the prize. Wow. I know. And in that, addition, that actually might be one of the, the highest EVs for anyone. I mean, you could probably go like X2 and maybe win that prize. Yeah, it's true. You could, yeah, you could go X2 and still win, I don't know, four hundred bucks. <laughs> yeah, if you're the top placing budget player. But one of the things about big event, vintage events, especially in the Northeast, is the community. Nick has planned all kinds of fun side events. He's got old school drafts planned. We don't know exactly which blocks and everything, but looking back in the past, like Time Spiral block, maybe older blocks, if you can get the product together, he's going to be running old school drafts. Modern Masters draft opens, that is plural, 64 players for a Modern Master draft event, which is awesome. And longtime stalwart of the Northeast community, Ray Robillard, is going to be out running his vintage trivia contest and probably some other things on the side to just give people things to do when they're not playing in an event. It's going to be, it's going to be an experience, Steve. I can't wait. So we're very excited. And this isn't all the news. He's going to have artist artists there that aren't you know it's not all in stone yet so we'll bring out more details as we learn them over the course of the next couple months so i hope that we see all of our listeners there if you're going to go to this event you know chime in uh, where, where and when it is yeah it's november 1st in philadelphia november 1st and 3rd that's right starting yes friday november 1st uh, yeah that's just the opening there will be qualifiers for the legacy championship on friday there will probably be some other side events that night then the Legacy will be on Saturday, and Qualifiers for the Vintage will be on Saturday, I believe. And then Vintage will be on Sunday. So it's a whole weekend. If you're an Eternal player, there'll be tons for you to do. And it's being held at the Convention Center, so space is not a concern. It's going to be awesome. More details for the Eternal Weekend then as they come in. Steve, I think you've got another chapter of your history of Vintage coming out now. I do. Um, by the time this podcast goes live, Chapter 8 which is the year 2000 should be published and 2001 will be just around the corner. Um, 2000 has been in the, in the canon and editing for some time because it's, it's over 30 pages long, which makes 2000 the longest chapter with 1997. And I have 2001 just around the corner. You know, you're talking about some pivotal times in the terms of the vintage community. There are some significantly important events that started to change community-wise around that time, wasn't there? Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about those later in the podcast, but um, you're absolutely right. Also, I'd just like to remind everyone that the first seven chapters, 1993 through 1999, are, all, are uh, already available on eternalcentral.com. Cool. Uh, one other thing I'll just mention is that, again, I plan to do 20 years of, of the Type 1 vintage format. And every five years at the end of the, of the chapter, I have a table. So my, my series takes its cue from Robert Hahn's famous School of the Magic, which we dedicated an entire podcast to. And in the end of the 1997 chapter, I have a big table that has what I view are the, the, the six schools of vintage that have persisted from 1994 
you know, the 94, 96 period, the present, and I identify what the tenets of each of those schools are, the three major principles that, that constitute those schools, and then examples of decks from each of those schools. And my intent is that every five years, so 97, 2000, 2007, and 2012, you'll see how um, those principles remain the same, but you'll see more and more decks and archetypes added to those. And we would be remiss if we didn't talk about GP Vegas, which is coming up in 24 hours from now, basically. This is an historic event. This is already confirmed and, well, via pre-register, it's already confirmed that this event is going to be the largest CCG event in history across more than just Magic. It's going to be the largest tournament in history by a mile. That's right. So, Steve, what do you think this means for the health of the game? Well, it's really interesting. First, they announced that they would not be taking Saturday morning registration in an attempt to make sure that, that the event begins smoothly because of the sheer size, the sheer quantity of players. Understandable. Then they announced that given the sheer number of registrations, pre-registration, they would actually cap pre-registration at 4,400 players and allow an additional 100 to sign up on site. Suggest that this tournament is going to reach its capacity of 4,500 players. I don't remember whether it was in one of our podcasts. Maybe listeners can let us know. But somewhere, perhaps it was an article, I remember saying that someday Magic Grand Prix, Magic tournaments would reach 5,000. And it looks like that day has arrived. I think that we should you know, just take a moment to break down what this means. Let's talk about what this means in terms of reprint, since this is functionally a Chronicles 2 and how popular it is. And what that means, is is that something that can be replicated, should be replicated? Is this a, a one-time thing, or is this the future? Well, I think at the moment, it's the beginning of a precedent, meaning Chronicles is a long time ago, and most active players weren't around then. And even then, it was not designed with the kind of thoroughness and, and intent that this set was. I think this marks the beginning of a new era, really, in terms of the combination of set release, development and release, and then the associated tournaments. The, The amount of hype around Modern Masters is unprecedented. And this event, although you might say that Vegas is something of a draw in and of itself, which is partially true, this event is probably, you can probably trace its success directly back to the Modern Masters set. That is clear. And the combination of those two things is just an incredible precedent. I mean, Wizards can learn so much from this experience about what the community wants and will respond to. And so from that standpoint, I would say this kind of GP is not going to be the norm per se. I think we're going to go back down to, quote unquote, down to 2,000 players to 3,000, give or take. But they can replicate this. It can be done. It can be recreated and probably should be their goal for future events. Yeah, exactly. This is something that this suggests, I think, a future path. And the first thing that's, that's notable is that in some ways this breaks up or undermines some of the assumptions about set design, right? I mean, so... One thing to keep in mind is that this is an all-reprint set, <laughs> and yet this is the most popular GP of all time. Second, not only is it an all-reprint set, but it's also all really powerful cards, right? So that undermines the principles of, of power heterogeneity, right? The idea that sets need bad cards and good cards, that you can just make a set of all good cards, people will love it. You're completely right. It's the definitive spike set. Which is another point, right? So if this, if Wizards just tries to make sets for psychographics, and yet this is the biggest tournament of all time, what does that say? I, I think that someone made a very good point. I think Sam Black said on Twitter, thinking too small, right? You have a hundred a hall that has a hundred thousand square feet. Maybe, you know, this goes to a point that I, I made a long time ago. I said that I thought that Wizards did better at retention and did a few things better. You 
you could really dramatically increase Grand Prix attendance over time. Why shouldn't there be 10,000 player Grand Prix? Why not? I'm with you. And I think you also said, maybe at the same time, maybe at a different time, that the Grand Prix's they should be building up the experience more. I mean, these things are still, like it or not, driven around the main event. The whole reason this is viewed as a success right now is the main event. There will be plenty of that's going on. Why not pitch these kind of things less as the main event or at least add more around them such that it, you stop calling it just one tournament. You stop referring to it as a tournament and refer to it as a weekend. And imagine the kind of way in which people will reconsider or reevaluate their participation in things at that level. People already feel that way, of course. People already plan a whole weekend around a GP. I mean, that's not uh, just, that's not news. Yeah. The point is, is that I think you are correct, and I think they are. This event demonstrates that people are just willing to participate uh, in great big things just for the sake right. of that, even. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. People want to be want to get involved in events and feel like the tournament they're in is, is meaningful beyond just a magic card. I think I think magic players crave narrative. Mm-hmm. They want to have significance and meaning associated with things. And this is this is aside from like a pro tour, this may actually have more significance for for the benchmark it sets for the the, the lessons it suggests about design, about how it tracks people to sets. I mean, one other thing that's notable about this set is this is an incredibly complex set. This is not a set of simple cards. And yet, look how successful it is. And again, friends, right? The, the, the business model of Wizards is built on, I mean, to some extent, is the idea that there's a collectible card game and that reprints under the collectability slash value or price of cards when we're reprinted. And yet, I mean, we could talk about that. I mean, what, what have we seen happen with Modern Masters Tarmogoyfs? What are those at, Kevin? They're basically at the same price as original Tarmogoyfs. There's so much here to unpack. It's going to be difficult for Wizards to unpack it, but if they unpack it well, I think it pretends very well for the future of the game. Yeah, I agree completely. It's funny how many of those goals are somewhat violated by this set. It's all reprints, as you said. It's very spiky, and yet they're getting this great reception. I don't think there's any way that, as a business, Wizards of the Coast can afford to ignore the message that's sent here by the community back to them. Yes. As a as an openly traded company, Hasbro <laughs> has a duty to its stockholders to recognize that this is what the community really responds to, or this is one thing, I should say, that the community really responds to. Yeah, I, I think we can expect to see more modern masters, and hopefully sooner rather than later. I mean, this is this is just ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, 4,500 people at a Magic tournament in Las Vegas? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually kind of small potatoes for Vegas. <laughs> the point is that... Window is that what 98 99% of the people will be from Las Vegas. 98% of the people going to this tournament will not be from Las Vegas, and I would I would be shocked if, if less than 60% weren't flying in. At least, yeah, agreed. I mean, people can drive from all over the Northwest, but that's the least dense population area in the United States for Magic for the most part, I would assume. Yep, or at least one of them, aside from Alaska and Hawaii. <laughs> so, well, I don't consider those regions. I consider <laughs> I mean, in terms of like regions, you might have like you know the Montana Dakota region maybe having this. So, what do you think the extended to GP Cheyenne would be? <laughs> <laughs> if it was modern, it'll be the second largest tournament of all time. <laughs> Well, speaking of large tournaments, I think we need to talk about the NYSE Open. 
So, Steve, you, you have a lot to say about this tournament. You were able to attend. You were able to play. So we got lots of direct feedback from you about the environment. And also we have lots of just ancillary and broader considerations with regard to this event in the vintage community as a whole. Where do you want to begin? Let's let's sort of draw a line between the Eternal Weekend and this event. Because I think both of these things would take together have greater significance either one what do you think they mean well they definitely portend a lot of involvement from the vintage community that is to say in contrast to wizards organizing events these are the two largest vintage events in the in north america and they are both effectively community run i think that's a very important point i just be careful to say to be careful when describing tournaments as wizards run wizards doesn't really organize tournaments They'll sponsor, but I just wanted to make that clarification. So pastime, for example, actually ran the Vintage Championship. That was I see. Yes, your, your distinction is well made. And these events, obviously one of them is the NYSE Open drawn almost entirely from a community standpoint. A Vintage TO starts this in their community, Nick Detweiler. And in the other sense, Nick Koss and running of the Eternal Weekend is him taking a, a a proactive stance as a TO in the vintage community and reaching out to Wizards to run this Eternal Weekend for them. What this trend represents is the community taking back the marquee events. When when vintage reemerged sort of in 2001, so in from basically 99 to 2000, there were almost no tournament organized type one tournaments in the United States. Like I, I can find almost no evidence of any. There may be some like, you know, eight, 10, 12 player local store run events. When vintage, when type one reemerged in 2001, it was basically led by the community. Bidominia became a hub of type one interest. And I talk a lot about this in my chapter, my history of vintage chapter 2000 and in 2001. What happened, Bidominia was not, it was not sold. It was not, it was not, advertised as a site for type one players but it, it became so organically through reputation and through network communities of interest in fact beta mania was originally a fanzine its type one forum became the place the major hub on the internet and this is really important because beta mania differed from other platforms you know the, the major internet platforms were like the usenet or the dojo dojo was derivative of the usenet because it extracted the best information from that and organized it but then other platforms emerged like star city game but what was different about bdominia and these other sites whether it was meridian magic or or whatever they were was that bdominia was specifically organized as a hub and became organically a hub for a specific niche format whereas all these other platforms were not dedicated to a particular format but discussed magic generally so the dojo would talk to extended whatever was relevant the same is true of starting what's interesting is that all of this interest in this format became organized around bidominia and then it became a virtuous circle interest begot tournaments tournaments begot reports and reports generated further interest and so passion was evident and visible on Bidominia spread. And you, you'll recall they organized online tournaments, but Kevin, you and I are both a product of Bidominia. Mm-hmm. And what what that meant for us is we became far more interested in the format because people were talking about it. People were sharing their experiences. And that interest in the in, in tournaments in the format generated further tournaments. So what happened is in 2000, when Bidominia sort of broke out, all of a sudden people wanted to play more ter- real-life tournaments. Origins and Gen Con became major tournament scenes. So you had a 64-player tournament at Gen Con that year. In 2001, there was a 64-player Type 1 tournament for a format that 
that had been considered dead, you know, just a year and two years before, in which there were almost no tournaments. And the other part of it that's really interesting is that it's not just the fact that people share their passion and organize themselves around their interest in the format, but that the tournament reports and the deck list discussion were, in many cases, not just brilliant, but often very well written. And that made the format compelling. Example, I dug up your Origins tournament report. There's a 33-player tournament at Origins, seven rounds, in which you got, I think, fourth place something like that. And your tournament report was very insightful. You had a play-by-play, but you all had analysis, you had a description of the metagame. It was it was professional, it was adult, it was compelling, and it's fun and entertaining. When people read that, they can read that tournament report and they go, oh, I understand this format. I, I know what the metagame is. I can build my deck to beat those decks and learn from what you said. And that is really built the community, built, built the scene. And that happened because of the community. Be Dominia drove of that. I mean, all the people who started writing for the, on Star City, Aaron D. Batista, Oscar Cannon, later myself, all came out of B2B. Um, they, they learned their chops, so to speak, there. And the, the reason I say that is because it, it's really, it was a major step in the format from being a dead format to a community-driven format. But this, in a sense, completes the circle. Gen Con and Origins, for a long time, supplemented with Star City Games, the major vintage and type one tournament of the last decade. And the exception was Ray Robillar, who organized the Waterbury. And that was the exception because it, he wasn't a business. He wasn't a store. He was a member of the community. Nick Koss is a business, he's a store owner. He is also a member of the community. And so Nick Koss and Nick Detweiler taking over two marquee events, the Waterbury becoming now the NYSE Open, replacing it, and then the Vintage Championship being taken over at Nick Koss, really creates the circle from disinterested tournament organizers like Pastime or professional event services who I, I think used to run at one point a lot of the origin tournament into community hands. And that's that's important for a host of reasons. One, because care about the format. They're not just businessmen, although they are, but they care about the format. Reading those old origins and Gen Con tournament reports, one often got that the tournament organizers really didn't care about the formats and gave crappy prize support. They didn't even have top eight playoffs in many cases. Yes, those events would end unceremoniously at times and, and origins i remember that from the tournament report you said specifically yeah they were all x plus one swiss plus one mm-hmm. that's a mistake nick cost will make as we've seen right this is going to be incredible prize support mm-hmm. and so while i i don't really play for the prize support many players do and many players feel disrespected if there's bad prize support and people have been complaining for years about the gen cup Vintage championship prize support being a painting and then crap after that and I can't really fault them, can you? Certainly not. It's it, it's not so much, as you said, that you play for the prize support, but it still speaks to the amount of respect that you're being given when second place at an event like an event called the Vintage Championship is just a stack of booster packs. Yes. They might be expensive booster packs, you know, Portal Three Kingdoms, Italian Legends, sure, but still, it's it's symbolic of the bigger issue. Absolutely. I think this is a very important trend. This is the decade-long trend of, of really moving towards community-organized events and community-led events, especially for the marquee events for the format. And this is, I think, what the future of Vintage is. I mean, Wizards is... You can't really blame Wizards, but Wizards is not going to go out of the way to sponsor or, you know, incentivize TOs to set up major t- vintage events. So this is what this is what alter- alternative. And finally taking control of these events is, is a great thing. You know, I, as you said that, I was thinking to myself, Wizards is, they are still supporting the format. They still do offer it as a sanctionable format, which is the bare minimum. But they still also offer this Eternal Weekend. And they have put support behind the format in the way that they're eventually deploying it to Magic Online. Magic Online is a good thing. It will let more people play Vintage, which is awesome, and I'm hoping it's a rousing success. 
But at the same time, it probably will be the extent of the support they give to Vintage, as you've observed, going forward. For the foreseeable future, we might have Eternal Weekend and then Online Vintage. But the prizes are likely to be dreadful. Well, the prizes for everything on Magic Online are comparable. I mean, it's the prize yeah. structure is probably going to be the same as any other Magic Online format, which is to say just packs. Let me just one more time just reinforce my main point, which is that the revival of the format that started in 2000, 2001 began because of the community, but because of a community of interest, a community of passion. And this, in a sense, completes the circle because the community has wrested control of its marquee events and is now sponsoring and organizing. And I think that's, that's only a good thing. And if North America is going to spawn an event the likes of the Bazaar of Moxon, it's going right. to come from one of these community-focused... Exactly. I think that's exactly right. So this is a changing of the guard. This year this year is a very historically significant year in the, in the history of the format. It's a history of... It's a, it's a changing of the guard, not just because... Not just because of Gen Con not no longer hosting the Vintage Championship, but also because the Waterbury is now sort of being replaced by the NYSE Open. Why don't we talk for a moment about the entry fee, what we think that means? $100 is pretty unprecedented for a magical tournament entry fee. At the outset, it seems absurd. If someone told you there's like a, a local tournament this weekend that has a $100 entry fee, that probably wouldn't seem attractive, you think? I agree. Most players would immediately scoff at that and say, what are you, crazy? Exactly. But... In the context of a major regional or national, it actually makes a lot of sense. But consider Gen Con. What are the costs of Gen Con? They run the gamut from food and shelter. You need your lodgings, which is almost certainly going to be the most expensive uh, expenditure yeah. for the weekend. And that your is. parking and your your pass to the event, just it adds up yeah. to the hundreds of dollars. Yeah. yeah, you need badge, entry, food, hotel, gas, not to mention vacation. $100 is a small percentage of those travel costs i Definitely. mean it's not a tiny percentage of them but it's it's not the major part and and so like when you th- begin thinking about the difference between say a 30 dollar entry or in 100 or a 40 dollar entry in 100 or a 50 dollar entry in 100 it becomes marginal and i so i think that a 100 dollar entry is is sensible i mean not to mention the, the cost of the format itself <laughs> you know yeah it's true so, so i think i think this is a sustainable model and i think it's a model for future success but i think there's one huge caveat Typically, we've measured success and measure success in, in Magic by tournament attendance. But I don't think $100, $100 entry is not calculated to get maximum attendance. It's not. But I think what it can be calculated to do, and we should just say now, the NYSE Open had almost 80 players in a $100 entry in New York City. What it can be calculated to do is generate high prestige marquee events because the best players will come. And also, to tie it back to Modern Masters, the Magic community as a, at large has collectively commented with their pocketbooks that they are willing to pay a little more than average for high quality or high value in their eyes. Exactly. And this just demonstrates that. Right, this becomes a marquee event. And, and that's a point that I'd like to just mention, just that this event felt like no other event I, I'd ever attended. It was truly a community because the people who were there really were passionate about the format, loved the format. He didn't, there wasn't, the judge reported there was not one major infraction in the entire tournament. There were three judges there. Not one major infraction. That's incredible. It was just like people were professional. People were excited. Excited. At the beginning of the tournament, Nick Detweiler announced the, the printer wasn't working. And so he announced every pairing for the first round. They fixed that for the second round. And every people were cheering each matchup like it was a feature match, like he was announcing them. Between rounds, he was giving away prizes and people were clapping and laughing. And that wasn't to say they weren't taking the, the format seriously. They're taking it very seriously. It's a $100 entry. You, by definition, take the format seriously if you're paying a $100 entry. 
<laughs> but there was a totally different vibe. What would you say about the level of play? The level of play was 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 as high as you get in the format. It was it was very high level play. Every round was a challenge. It was again courteous. There weren't a lot of kids there. You don't have a lot of twelve year olds playing a hundred dollar entry fee, which is, I I think frankly is a good thing. We don't want to we don't want to set that as a goal for the for the format per se. No, but th- but this is this is something that's very very different, and I think it's a, it is sustainable and something that should be a model that other people should emulate. I'd love to see more TOs pop up and and try something like this. I want to see interested TOs, not primarily, you know, pastimes, professional events, SCG, as good as they are, they were disinterested TOs in the sense that they were not really driven by the vintage format, but by opportunities to make money, which is fine. I mean, but I'm saying is that there are opportunities to do both. And I think Nick Koss and Nick Detweiler have, have opened people's eyes to that. I think the Bizarre Moxon, you know, could be a similar thing. I think that there is definitely more opportunities to do big money tournaments that can be regional or even national draws. I hope that happens. I certainly hope the NYSE continues, at least on an annual basis. They've made a strong investment in their community up there in the Northeast. That's no, that's not news. I think that that kind of success can be replicated in other parts of the world, of the country, in the world. And if you are an aspiring community member or TO out there listening to this show, please take heart. I mean, these things do do start small, but both of these major success stories that we're talking about the New York Stack Exchange and the Eternal Weekend now had their roots in community members such as you. So it, it is possible. Steve, let's move on to talk about the event then. Yes. So you talked about what it felt like to play in it, but what did you feel like about the metagame going in? Well, um, I should just say that I knew I would be underprepared for this event. I knew I'd be underprepared because I had a huge consulting gig I had to do in Columbus, Ohio the week before. My mom was moving out of her house, so I had to help her pack, and and I had a heck of a lot going on at work. But I still wanted to prepare some, and I thought going in, enemy number one would be workshops. If you had a deck that could not be workshops, you shouldn't even bother showing up. I also believe there was going to be heavy control element, like decks like Landstill and Bomberman. So those are the top three decks that I expected. Um, and um, I almost all of my testing had been devoted to Workshop, and I played 21 games against Workshops, all in the draw, and I, with my Burning Tendrils deck, Burning Long, and I won 50% of them. So I, I thought if I can do that, win on the draw 50% of the time, I will, I'll play that. But again, I thought enemy number one is Workshop. If you have a deck that is soft to Workshops, that is a disqualifier. And I told anyone who asked me, that's what I thought. Um, but again, I also thought you would probably face like Landstill and Bomberman and stuff like that. So what was the actual breakdown? So the reality of the metagame, as described by pillars of the metagame, we have five pillars, Manadrain, Workshop, Null Rod, Bazaar, and Rituals. The largest was, by far, Mana Drains at 36%. Second and third place, very close. Workshops at 23%, Null Rods at 22%. One deck difference there. How do you distinguish Null Rods from like, the Workshop decks that had Null Rods? Well, I think the distinction there, and this is, again, coming from Nick Detweiler, the TO, in his report, I think the distinction simply is the presence of Workshops. There are probably Workshop decks on this list, although I don't know it literally, that have some Null Rods in them. But, but the Rod Delver deck, he has a Null Rods. I don't the null rod category can probably be also described as uh, agro control since it features rug delver and merfolk and noble fish and bug fish and you know it's what we would frequently describe as fish decks but they're not all quite under that umbrella still agro control and workshops were about equivalent and they're 23 and 22 percent respectively the next was bazaars 12 percent so those are all just dredge variants 
And the last was Dark Ritual at 8%, which consisted of four Burning Long or Burning Tendrils players and two Doomsday players. (laughs) So as we've come to expect from the Northeast, and as you were expected going in, the top two constituents were control decks with drains mostly and workshops. And that's no surprise. So what did it feel like then, Steve, on the floor while you were playing? Well, it actually felt like there was a little bit less workshop than I expected. And um, I think more agro-control decks than I expected. I expected agro-control decks. I just didn't expect that many. Yeah, I would never have predicted that they were roughly equivalent workshops and and agro-control. So what did you face throughout the event? The first round, I played Lansdale. And for the first time in any tournament with Burning Tendrils, I mulliganed the three in the first game. My first hand had a Mox Emerald, Mox Ruby, both of Druids, but no other mana sources, no other spells to play off those. And I just thought, well, if he's playing like Lansdale, well, then I can't keep this hand. So uh, I mulliganed the three, and my I had no lands until my final three, which was Orchard, Duress, Ponder. I mulliganed five, and I actually almost won that game. In the second game, that was just um, a really screwy game and unfortunate. So I, I resolved Tinker. I resolved the Tinker through his Flusterstorm for Jar, and I Jar. The problem is that in that position where we got into the position where I resolve Ancestral Recall, I'm able to play Ponder, and I see Burning Wish on top of my deck, and I have a Burning Wish and Windfall in my hand, and I duress him, but I can only take either the Drain or the Flusterstorm. So I have to take the Flusterstorm. I can't possibly win through that. So the question is, do I Windfall or Burning Wish? Which one do I want to get drained? The logic is, I decided to have him, I thought, I was certain he would drain the Burning Wish. I was uncertain he would drain the Windfall. So I thought, okay, I'll play Burning Wish, I'll Windfall for four, drawing the Burning Wish on top of my deck, then Burning Wish for Tendrils and win the game. That was a clearly flawed logic, because if I play the Windfall and he doesn't drain it, he loses the drain. So he's probably going to drain it. Um, and if he if, if he drains the Windfall, then I play Burning Wish, the Burning Wish in my hand, Tendrils and win the game. Then we're off to game three. That was a, just a mistake on my part. That was the worst play I made during the tournament, I think. And um, it cost me an important game, too. After, I mean, which is amazing because I was still almost in there in game one after mulligan to three. I was really disappointed. And it was also amazing because he clearly didn't understand that his, his uh, cages didn't do jack. So his cages were worthless. I just was very unlucky to resolve Oath and then draw the Maniac. You know, what can I do at that point? <laughs> so I was really upset about that, but I, I cost myself that game by playing badly. The rest of the match is unremarkable. I'll just say that I lost a land still. I definitely made some misplays. I definitely did some really good plays, but ultimately I couldn't pull it out. The second round was pretty unremarkable. I played against a Gush deck. I won 2-0. Um, he was playing a basically a Lotus Cobra Gush deck that had cut Lotus Cobras for Deathrite Shaman. Round three, I played a, a, a Dredge deck, and I won 2-0, including winning game one. One, I think I played Time Twister on, on turn two or three. I brainstormed into Time Twister, hid the brains, hid the Time Twister. He started, lo- he really loaded his graveyard to try and win next turn. Instead, I Time Twistered into the win. I think in the second game, I played Diminishing Return, which did the same thing. In round four, I played Ryan Glacken on Shops, and I won 2-0. In the first game, he goes Factory, Mox, Thorn. I play Orchard, Sapphire, Lotus, Oath. I Oath up Bristlebrand. He casts Metamorph, and I draw 14. I actually had drawn 7 when I Oath it up. Wasn't able to break out of the bounce the thorn, but I was able to. When he cast the metamorph, I decided I would draw seven more, which put me in a very precarious position. Despite having tremendous card advantage, I was able to make a sequence of plays, including included winning a a flip with mana crypt and pondering his recall with about twenty cards left in my library to Hercules recall him and go off. In game two, he played a bunch of thorns, and I played. I actually hard cast maniac, and I cast. 
tinker through the thorns and I and I sacrificed lion's eye diamond and activated the jar and Hercules his board inside the jar and was easily able to to win from there. No kidding. Yeah. So I two owed Ryan Glack and then workshops mud. And then round five I played Bug Fish from the Bazaar Mox and I got smoked. I played turn one duress both games and in both games he missed up the duress. In game one I played turn two Tinker which he forced then he wasted my land. I played turn four bargain which he spell pierced. Game two I again led with the rest he missed up. He wasted my only land. I vamped for Lotus and Lotus Necro when he played he forced. I tried to claim back into it, but I balanced a null rod, but it but he just had too much counter magic because it was a couple turns later. So I was ended up three two right there. Um, round six, I played Vinny Farino on Dredge, and just like round three, I two owed it, one winning game one. So and then I played Jayco in the last round, who was playing a control deck. Game one, I resolved the mid-game time twister after we were both completely in top deck mode. I didn't win, but he did. <laughs> As is often the case with time twister. I stalled out. In game two, my hand was the I played I had my opening hand, I played turn one oath of druids with Orchard. He forced it. But then he thought he's my ancestral. <laughs> so he had four Thoughtseize. I burning wish for your dog Moss Will on turn two. And I played Will on turn three with a dark ritual with mana up to play both ancestral and oath. But he had another force. Apparently, he told me later his opening hand was two force, two blue spell thoughts. Um, I had four matches in which I went 2 0, and three matches in which I went 0 2. So, in retrospect, though, I definitely felt prepared for workshops, but I was not prepared, sufficiently prepared for the metagame. I was definitely not prepared for Bugfish. I was I was partially prepared for Landstill, but there were some things I should have done differently. I won't necessarily talk about some of those changes because I may make those, some of those changes in the future. But I um, I made a few play mistakes, but primarily my mistake was not, not sufficiently preparing for this tournament just because my schedule was ridiculously hectic beforehand. You know, Steve, it's worth pointing out that per our predictions from last episode, well, I don't think we predicted this in, in quite so to literal term, but the Bugfish deck from the Bazaar of Moxon was very popular. Yes. I don't have all of the lists in front of me here but by let's say deck list name and again this is going by nick detweiler's assessment of each list yeah. bugfish and espresso stacks were the two decks that were the most numerically played in this event the guy who played it's interesting there were, i just would say there are four players who played my deck including me and one of them made top eight um mm-hmm. the, the, the guy who, who i think did best with Buckfish was the guy I played, and I think he ended up 10th, 10th or 11th place with it, and he was a very good player. Um, I just got smacked around by his draws and by his deck. So Bugfish was a force for sure. And I, I, I could have easily beaten, I just did, did not prepare enough. I focused way too much on workshops in the little time I had. So as we said before, if you're prepping for a major vintage event, you got to keep that Bugfish deck on your radar. It's very popular, and looks like it will continue to be so. So shall we go on and talk about the top eight then? Let's do it. Let's go through the deck list. This is a fascinating top eight. Now, the event was won by our good friend and teammate, Paul Mastriano. Paul is a former vintage champion and well-known in the community. He played a fascinating kind of Esper control deck, which was, and I think we can get Paul to talk about this more later, but adapted from Bomberman, removing the the core of the Bomberman combo, keeping most of all of the white cards in the sideboard. So this is basically just a blue-black Bob Jace deck with white cards in his sideboard. He described this deck to me as mostly just bombs. He just throws bombs over and over again. And that's how he plays it. He protects his bombs and then tries to set up a key card resolving like Tinker, like Yawgmoth's Will. 
he plays some cards that you don't see too often in modern control decks, at least not in the main. He has two thought seas in here. And I think that card is coming into that card and duress are coming into more of a popularity in the format these days. These kind of things always ebb and flow. He also has a full three set of spell snares in his main deck, which is becoming more and more common right. these days in the, the counter spell package. We should step back. I mean, I think um, there's two things to be said. One is that Paul's deck is originally derived from a Bomberman list, so he'd been playing Bomberman recently. Mm-hmm. And he cut the cards that he didn't like. But there's another way of looking at this deck, I think a more important one, which is that it's a Bob Jace deck with, with Tinker and Time Ball is the win conditions, which puts it directly in line with the de- really the decks that have won the last four Vintage Championships or came in second place. Mm-hmm. Three of the last four Vintage Champions have played this archetype. The Hiromichi Atal list, the Owen Turtonwald list, the Mark Lenigra list, and then the, the list that Paul and I ran in the 2011 championship to second and third place. The difference is that, the key difference is that, you know, so Hiromichi Atal played, uh, what, four colors. Owen Turtonwald played with green as well. Mm-hmm. Mark Lenigra played uh, Grixis. Paul just played plays with white. And I think that's the key that he adopted from Bomberman. He adopted a couple things from Bomberman that are really important. One is the three spell snares. But the second thing is is this white. And the white in the sideboard was really, really good for him. Swords, he had been running Path to Exile, but the swords are great against workshops. And he played workshop aggro in the top eight. This guy who played the Genesis Chamber deck. And um, his deck was really brilliantly metagame. Those two thought seasons are great. The spell snares are great. Um, and and it's notable that he's the only uh, the only... Lightsteel Colossus deck in the top eight, and in fact in the top eleven. Paul, but that's the deck Paul has always done well with. Is the very tempo-oriented Bob Jace control deck, combo control deck. It's also noteworthy that we're seeing these uh, control decks coming through with no Snapcaster Mage. Paul has no Snapcasters, which you would think are something of a stalwart for vintage control decks these days. But but while Mark Lenigra ran it, uh, you know we didn't run Snapcaster Mage the year before, but I think that it's also because Snapcaster had not been legal. Yep. But it's, you know, but it's an open question as to whether you would. I, I tend to think you know, clearly Bob is the is the key part with the Jace. You know, that's the Bob Jace combo has won again three of the last four Vintage Championships, mm-hmm. and now this. There's a it's clearly a successful combo. <laughs> and if you're planning to play in a major vintage event like the forthcoming Eternal Weekend, you simply cannot be prepared for that event if you don't know how and have a plan for beating a Bob Jace deck. Right, that's right. And the difference between other—I don't know how many people played Bob Jace deck. Looking at the metagame breakdown, it looks like there was a four-color Jace control deck. It's hard to tell whether that had Jace or whether it had Bob or not. Mm-hmm. And there was a um, a—I uh, only see, I see Paul's blue, white, black Jace vault. I don't see many other. There's two Grixis controls. I think the what the difference between Paul's deck and these other Bob Jace decks is that Paul again very well metagame. If you just ran Mark Lenegra's deck, I don't think you would have done as well. It's the fact that he he had this particular configuration of disruption, which included spell snare and thought scene, and then this this white in the sideboard. That was the distinct. In addition think, to his natural skill, go ahead. I agree. I think this list is awesome. I think this gives players who look at Bomberman and maybe don't don't want to play that exact kind of deck, but are still attracted to something other than Grixis. I think this gives players like that a good option here, and this deck will become a model, I think, for control decks going forward. We're joined by special guest, winner of the NYSE Open 1, Paul Mastriano. Paul, say hello. How's it going? Thanks for joining us again, Paul. You've been on the show before, and uh, listeners, a longtime listeners will recognize your voice from last year's Vintage Champs coverage, where we talked about that tournament and the top eight decks in detail. 
And Paul, why don't you give us a taste of how you developed this Suicide Jace Vault deck that you won this event with? Well, for a while there, I wasn't sure what deck to play in this metagame. There was a lot of workshops, and I was kind of floundering a little bit between archetype and archetype, just kind of looking for something that worked for me. And the Bomberman guys kept winning, so I'm like, well, I guess I'll try that. And what I learned from playing Bomberman, of course I had to do the Paul Mastriana thing and jam Tinker and Time Vault in there. <laughs> and Blightsteel. <laughs> that's how I roll, right? And in doing that, I found that I really liked the counter base in the Bomberman deck, but once I had Tinker and Time Vault in there, I didn't want to do the Bomberman thing anymore. <laughs> I, I made top eight at the tournament that I played it at, and I Bomberman somebody one time the whole day. One game. That's, that's a pretty <laughs> common refrain from Bomberman players. Oh. Yeah, so what made I was you- like, well, let's get that out of there. And, <laughs> and so I started kind of... I, I drew up a deck list that was kind of in between. Like I had, uh, I had Trinket Mages, Tinker, Time Vault, and I'm like, well, one thing I always want to do is play the Unholy Trinity of Vintage cards, Tinker, Time Vault, Yogwill. So I'm like, well, we might as well just go all in here and put black. So at that point, I'm like, well, we might as well replace the Trinket Mages with Dark Confidants. And I thought that Dark Confidants would give me a lot of edge in these blue mirrors that I was expecting to face. So basically, you know, I'm playing a lot of the same counter spells as most of the other blue decks, but now I have this like better draw engine where they're doing trinket mage, I'm doing dark confidant. So I'm a good turn faster in that way. And what they ultimately usually end up doing is just getting divining top anyway. So I mean, two turns of Bob is way better than one turn of divining top. Paul, before you joined us, one of the things I was saying is that um, ultimately your deck really doesn't look that much different in terms of the the key cards. The the, the structure doesn't look a lot that different than the the Bob Jace decks with Tinker and Time Vault that won the last three of the four vintage champs. Hiramichi Atal, Owen Turtenwald, and Mark Lanigra, and then even our deck from 2011. They all have basically four Bobs, two to three Jaces, a bunch of counterspells, a bunch of restricted cards, Key Vault, and Tinker for Blightsteel. Yeah, and I've had a lot of success with decks that are like that, so I find myself keep coming back to that equation. Right. You played that, I mean, I remember you won a pretty big tournament against Nick Detweiler in the finals with a deck. Yeah, it was fully open, and actually, no, it's not true. I lost to Nick Detweiler playing that configuration. No, but you beat him, and then you lost him the next time. I beat him the previous time, but I had four thirst for knowledge at that time. Right, right. And in the in the interlude between those two tournaments, they restricted thirst for knowledge, and I switched to dark confidant. And yeah, Nick was able to take me out in the finals of that one. But it was funny because we met up in the finals two major tournaments in a row. Yeah, he's like, I tested against your deck list. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, wow. I was like, I just kind of threw this together after they restricted thirst. (laughs) <laughs> yeah but the, the the thing is you built you definitely grafted in these these the, the counter package so spell yeah, snare yeah. being awesome but i wanted to where did you get the idea for Thoughtseize? actually brian demars suggested Thoughtseize, and he gave me a lot of compelling reasons as to why i should get Thoughtseize into my deck and the big ones that stood out for me was uh abrupt decay yes which can disrupt my time vault yes. thing as well as um uh, what's he? And Notion Thief could be out there, and I was a little bit afraid that someone might come out with a Notion Thief. I thought I thought thought this is actually as brilliant as Bell Snares, and then yeah. and, and in your I mean that card that card actually murdered me on the day. Thoughtseize. 
yeah, ends up being really good in a lot of other matchups that are scary. Like, I ended up playing against, like, a, a show-and-tell deck and things like that where, you know, you just want bots and all day. Yes, yeah. Your deck, I thought your deck was, I said this, like, on round three, I thought it was perfectly metagame for the field. But that's the difference. So someone, we were, Kevin and I were looking through the metagame breakdown, and there were, I think, maybe four total Bob J stacks, two of them Grixis and one of them four color. And none of them probably were even close to as good as yours for this tournament. Yeah, I knew that my deck was really good because I had run an almost identical version in the Lancaster tournament a couple weeks before. And I didn't have the Thoughtseize technology yet. Yeah. But I made the top eight and then I blew it because I played two Graph Digger cages against Dredge. Mm. And it was Lance Ballister playing Dredge, who I ended up playing in the finals of this NYSE. So he took <laughs> me out in this Lancaster tournament, and then it comes full circle later, I get to play him in the finals here, and well, ultimately win. Well, why don't we turn to his deck now, unless you guys have more pressing comments on calls. Lance played, you said Dredge at the last tournament, but switched it up to a weird... How would you describe this deck? Land still... Smushed with Trinket Mages. With Trinket Mages, right. Smushed together with some elements of... And his deck... <laughs> you got him pretty good in the finals, especially with turn one Blightsteel. He has no... Um, he has His only answers to Blightsteel are Jace, which he obviously couldn't cast on turn two. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he does have a Graph Digger's Cage, which he can get down before you tinker, but that's obviously too late. What do you what do you make of, the, of this deck list, guys? I thought his deck list was pretty innovative. I think that the, uh, the Landstill decks always kind of wanted some extra like tutoring ability, something like that, and adding in Trinket Mage is a good way to do it. It seems to take some of the best technology from Bomberman again. It's really interesting how fully half of this top eight is inspired by different decks that have their roots in Bomberman. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm just curious, uh, what is your thought about the Blightsteel? Some people have wondered, you know, if, if other Tinker targets are better. You're the only person with Blightsteel in the entire top eight. How would you how would you view Blightsteel like vis-a-vis Mere Battlesphere? Uh, I really like Blightsteel just because there's an equation that I always think in my head that like Blightsteel plus a Counterspell or two is game over. <laughs> yep. <laughs> And when your deck is already running a bunch of counter magics, then just holding on, holding down Blightsteel is a very easy way to win. Well, you just hit it and you back it up. What, what, that, you're describing a tempo play. And the, and the yeah. counter spell is just rewind. And one of the things that, that is so notable is that the, the players in the Northeast seem to not go that route. And I was watching you play, and you, you and I both played very aggressively, very tempo-oriented, with our, even with our control decks. And yeah. you, I think you're one of the most aggressive control players I've seen. And when I was watching Greg Fenton play Joe Brown at the, the Friday night tournament before, I was really shocked by how not tempo-oriented he was. So he had this really crazy scenario where he was could, like, demonic tutor for Black Lotus to cast turn one Jace. And he did it, which I thought was a great play and a resolve. But then he got in this situation every single time for the rest of the game where he could make the tempo play. He didn't. So there was a, a time where like he could have gotten time uh, time walk like with the tutor or something, and I was certain Joe was going to counter it, and he didn't. He didn't play. He didn't play the time walk. And if he had played the time walk, Joe would have countered it, and it would have been a ridiculous blowout because Greg would have forced backed up, and Joe would have been completely spent. And instead, he played it a turn later in a more controlling move, and Joe countered it, but it wasn't nearly as valuable in terms of the tempo game. And he would have like been so many turns ahead of, of Joe, but he let Joe come back in the game by giving him time. I wonder if you have some sort of observation on sort of play style differences like that in, in the Northeast or in your region. I mean, I 
personally, I usually like to play my decks very aggressively. I like to, what I'm thinking in my head is, I'm going to throw bomb after bomb at you. Yes. And <laughs> you deal with the ones that you can, but I'm working my way up to the most killer bomb. <laughs> the one that, like, you can't actually stop this one because you had to spend resources doing the other ones. When I'm kind of sitting back and playing a control role, usually it's because those other options aren't available. Yeah. I just think it's interesting how the so many players in the Northeast have gravitated. I think there's a metagame dynamic where like one player like Josh plays a hard control deck and players like have to figure out how to beat it. And instead of like going aggro control, they go even harder control. So it becomes a lot of hard control matchups where people aren't used to that kind of the style of play you just described anymore. Right. And I, I know that Craig Barry described to me in the car that he said he likes to play this like grindy, mid-rangey control game. And that really comes through in his deck, right? I mean, doesn't that seem like what Blue Angels does great is this grindy mid-range control game? Absolutely. Yeah. So like, um, and I and I, the, my first thought was, I was like, well, that's not what I like to do at all. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I realized that you know certain people like to do certain things, and you could be successful doing other strategies. Absolutely. Let, let's turn to the third place deck, unless Kevin, unless you wanted to say anything more about the second. No, we'll let's, we'll get down to Blue Angels in a minute i think i'm really interested to hear more about that but so, so third place was rug delver and a gush deck and i think this deck kind of gets overlooked in the mix i think something that's interesting this deck is basically a straight port from last last fall but what's interesting about this is that this is the kind of deck that i would play in a metagame that's 100 percent landstill because this deck can trade one for one and get ahead because of tempo and while landstill can combat a deck like this i mean it's got engineer explosive it's got lightning bolt this is the kind of deck that can really give a hard control deck fits um with its especially i would probably run more flusterstorm than this guy has he has he has one and i think ancient grudge is pretty good against landstill as well but all of these cards are just nightmare cards for landstill what do you think yeah and I was really excited to get this pairing in the top four. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because I had played Rug at the Vintage Championship last year, and I got totally dominated by Dark Confidant control decks. So I I didn't I don't really know why, to be honest, but I felt like that that was probably going to bear out here because that's just the way that it seems to play out whenever I've faced the matchup. Yeah. Like, I saw it from the other side last year, and I was like, well, now you're going to get to know what it feels like from the side I was sitting in. <laughs> well, I think the reason this deck is so good against Landstill is the reason it's so bad against the Bob Jace combo control deck is that the the, the, the Landstill deck can't cannot possibly outrace this deck. And every time it plays a threat, the, the only way Landstill can really beat a deck like this is if it can burn out all of its its creatures and then completely wipe out its mana base so it can't redeploy more and, and stay ahead. Whereas, like, against the combo control deck, this deck has cards like Tarmogoyf and do-nothings like Trigon Predator and Tarmogoyf and Delver, whereas you're just tutoring up the combo and protecting it. What can, yeah, what can yeah. this... Rug is pretty bad against Time Vault. Exactly. And Yawgmoswell. Exactly. And Tinker for... Even Tinker for Colossus. <laughs> yeah, like, I think he might have, like, a main board steal sabotage or whatever but also his deck features a lot of cards that cost one and two and i have all these spell snares and mental yes, exactly i wonder if this deck would be almost better if it adopted some of your technology oh and then he has he has gush which a lot of times i like kind of exposed him on like where he kind of had to play it or he was in trouble and then yeah. it like opened up to make me mana draining it as well 
<laughs> Getting your gush mana draining mana drained is so deflating. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> like that's just like it's like terrible. You're like, especially, wow, that's the worst thing that could have possibly happened. Especially when your strategy is tempo. It's one thing if you're like a combo. Right, because you get like a million negative tempo from that. Exactly. Yeah, like infinite. You lose two land, you don't get to draw, gain five mana, like you're just yeah, dead in, you're dead in the water. <laughs> The simple, the simple truth is, is that this rug Delver deck, in in function and in practice, is super weak to Dark Confidant. Just the card Dark Confidant. Yes, it has lightning bolts, but Dark Confidant players typically have mental misstep to fight that, and there's just nothing else it can do strategically against a Dark Confidant other than try and reduce its controller's life total. Well, here's the here's the answer to that, Kevin. Is that Gush and Dark Confidant actually generate the same amount of card advantage over time? The problem is that this deck doesn't win as quickly as Key Vault is the combo. Exactly. Right, I always felt like I had a good amount of time to do it. Yeah. I mean, he could probably get you if he, like, goes, like, you know, the the whole bolt, mage, bolt thing, like, with a quick delver. But that's... Yeah, that's like, not- his fastest win involves time walk and things like that. It's, I don't know. Yeah, definitely. Fourth place is our resident Lansdell player, Josh Pachusek, with Rug Lansdell. Yeah, I was kind of happy that Pachusek lost in that mirror to Lance because I was kind of more concerned to play against Josh. But the only thing was that Lance had seen my deck before. So it was a little bit of both, you know, like, do you want to play against this guy who's known to be the Lansdale master or the person that actually kind of knows what you're doing? The the most amazing thing is while Lance is supposedly playing lands and trickets, he has far less counter magic. He's got four fours, four drains, and three mental misstep, and that's it. Whereas Josh Pachusek has two, he he has two mind break trap, which can be really devastating for your style of play. Yeah, I'm happy I didn't have to face mind break trap. I kind of was (laughs) thinking about it a little bit while I was playing, though. I was like, hmm, what if he has mind break trap? Because I knew it was Lance I didn't know he didn't have it, you know what I mean? Right, right. But that's, I mean, there again, your thought seizes are useful, things like that all come into play. And your spell snares are insane against Mana Drain. <laughs> and standstill. And standstill, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you know, Josh has been doing good with that deck forever now. Josh, go ahead. No matter what the metagame does, it seems like he still does fine. There was a really funny play where uh, Lance played an Engineer Explosives for one, I think, against you or yeah. someone. I think it was you. And, and and Josh comes over and he says, oh, man, Lance just messed up. He should have used the library to play it for two mana to beat Metal Misstep, but to only put one counter on it. And what I told him is, you have three spell snares in your deck. So it's <laughs> six, six of one, half dozen of the other. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the the funny thing is the other funny thing is Josh was playing uh, Lance in the in the top four and in Josh kept a hand that had just Barbarian Ring for mana. Kevin, he kept a hand that just had Barbarian Ring. And he, for like five turns, he just had Barbarian Ring. Is his only land. Wow. And Josh won that game. Wow. wow. <laughs> you know, you probably have that kind of time in the Landstone Mirror, though. Exactly. <laughs> What's he going to do, standstill you? <laughs> <laughs> well, then I, I was going over to report to say, it looks like Josh is, is done. And I come back, and Josh has like Jason play. <laughs> <laughs> you know, speaking of Jace, Paul, what's your, what's your experience, especially in this top eight, with how important Jace was? Because the two ostensibly landstill decks in second and fourth place both have four Jace, and you had three. So how key was that? You know, Jace didn't really come into play too much in the top eight, as much as it did in the rest of the tournament. I did. I did have like one Jace there that he countered in the finals, but I didn't really play a lot of Jace in the top eight. Do, like it's not as good against Rug, that's for sure. Do you feel like having four Jace, or at least maybe a minimum of three, is really 
absolutely necessary. I, I think now, actually, that they're changing the rule about Jace might make you want to have even more. <laughs> you might right. want to run the full four now. Yeah, because you can Jace Storm and then and do something and then play the, the next Jace. Immediately. Play the next Jace. It's going to be harder to kill Jace. You're going to have to actually do it the hard way. Mm-hmm. Like you can't just remove someone's Jace with a Jace. So you're having your Jace out first and like doing it a couple times is going to matter. I'm not sure. I, I think that Jace is very good right now. So it's it has been for a long time. I mean, there's nothing wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you get it. You draw a lot of cards. Plus, you know, I have I have Jace to keep myself from dying to my confidants. Very important. So the uh, moving on to the next deck, the fifth place deck is probably the most eyebrow raising of all the decks by far. <laughs> yeah, this is my favorite deck in the top eight. Adrian Becker with Affinity Robots. Kevin, why don't you describe this deck for our Paul and Kevin? Why don't you guys describe this deck? Paul, did you play against this deck? Yeah, I feel like I was super lucky to beat this guy. His deck is insane. This is—I'll tell you what this deck is. This deck uses a card called Genesis Chamber, which says whenever a player puts a creature into play, they get a one-one artifact token. It also uses Memnites and other like fast creatures with Skull Clamp. And once you get Skull Clamp going, I'm sure he can draw a billion cards. But he never had Skull Clamp against. <laughs> I feel like I was really lucky to not have faced Skull Clamp. The card that goes nuts. The card that you were most scared of though was seemed to be Tangle Wire. Yeah, Tanglewire kind of caught me by surprise. He beat me in the first game. The first game is very interesting. He played a Lodestone Golem on turn one. On my turn one, I was able to put out a bunch of Moxes, and I was able to tinker on turn two to get my Blightsteel, and he was able to play Memory Jar, and Memory Jar, and I was completely tapped out because I had to pay the extra for Lodestone to get my Tinker off, mm-hmm. and I only had four permanents in the play, and he found his tangle wire in the memory jar and was able to play like 16 power worth of creatures so i had to tap out and then just get pounded and that's how game one went down i was like man this deck is scary (laughs) his deck's really cool it seemed like he thought of everything he has two gaius cradle in there which is like a second academy almost in his deck and i'm like wow you know like he thought of all these different things. You know, he has revokers, which I'm sure are super awesome in there. Just so many good ideas. Memory jar. I mean, you don't think you think of memory jar right away when you're trying to build this deck. You know what I mean? That's obviously something that you come up with after you test it a lot. Yeah, he put a lot of thought. Like, that deck was really cool. And I bet that deck is an absolute nightmare for a regular workshop deck. <laughs> because you almost don't care about anything that they do. And you're, like, ten times more aggressive than them. And you, have a, and you have a draw engine, the likes of which most workshop decks do not. Yeah, I mean, they're like, they play Lodestone Golem, and you're like, okay, whatever. I play, like, 20 guys. Yeah. <laughs> and, you, and you've got inevitability because of not only skull clamp drawing you cards but also steel overseer and genesis chamber there's no way that they can keep up with the amount of permanence you can generate or the size of your creatures yeah i mean i feel like you probably are so far ahead game one against shop with that deck just, the, it's got to be ridiculous this deck is so well designed another thing i really like about it though is that it is something you don't see in vintage but it's something you see in modern. Players who like affinity in modern would be really attracted to this deck in vintage, I think. And I'm always on the lookout for decks that would attract players from other formats. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you about this deck when I, during the tournament, after about round two, I think he beat 
Josh Podrasek in round two or, or three. And Josh is like, I lost to Affinity. It was a nightmare, right? And, you know, that was kind of like a thing that everybody kept saying. And, like, the Affinity guy is still undefeated. Yep. Affinity guy is still undefeated. And then, of course, at the end of Swiss, he was number one. <laughs> and he was on the play against I got him. paired with them. I was eighth seed. And I'm like, man, now I have to face this deck. All the pe- I really know about it is its Affinity, which doesn't tell you anything about it, actually. It's more of a misnomer than anything. It's a shop deck that's super aggressive. Yeah. It's got Lodestone, Golem, Tanglewire, Genesis. Chamber, Skull Clamp, Memnite, Signal Pest, Rexian Revoker, Frogmite, Seal Overseer, Arcbound Ravager, and One Memory Jar in mana. The only thing that he has in his deck with Affinity is Frogmite, and that might be the most forgettable card in the whole list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's face it, right? That's the least impactful one of them all. <laughs> you might as well be Ornithopter. It's almost like he has them in there just to call it Affinity. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this deck... Out of, I'm, it's not like this is unusual for vintage decks, but this deck must get the most schizophrenic kind of draws. And I think someone who practiced with this deck and became very skillful at mulliganing with it and knowing what combinations do work and what do not, I think someone that was skilled with this deck could be a real force in a major tournament like this. Going forward, I mean. Yeah, I mean, that, that deck is really innovative. It was very fast. I'm sure he caught everybody he played with it off guard. I was caught off guard for sure. So, I mean, that's that's a rogue deck and then some. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in this deck that's new, or is it just, just recombining old parts into new ways? I don't I recognize Steel Overseer. I think it's old technology kind of looked at in new ways. Yeah, no real new printings, but... Just some simple things like the inclusion of Gaia's Cradle go a long way. And it does illustrate, once again, the depth of vintage decks that are out there Yeah, that people haven't thought of yet. Like, I can't, I like, you know, I look at that list and I'm like, wow, I can't believe nobody thought of this before. Yeah. You know, there was a deck like this back in one of the old Star City Power and Double Power Nines back in Chicago about a decade ago. Steve, you might remember that one. I think you and I are both at that one. And it was an affinity workshop aggro like this. It was, I think, shortly after Thorn came out. I'm very surprised to see Thorns not in the main deck here. Yeah. It seems so synergistic with the deck's plan. I would, if it were me building it, I would probably find a way to fit two or three in the main. I wonder if it's because he expected to play against more workshops. That's a good point. Very well could be. It's pretty pretty dreadful against workshops. And everything yeah. everything he has here is good against workshops, so that's a fair point. His this deck, deck is fine banging against workshops. Yeah, this deck has just no dead cards <laughs> against shops in game one, which is super nice in, in a heavy shop metagame. And that goes to the point earlier, Kevin, Paul, I was saying that, that the number one criteria for participation in this tournament is that you have to have a good match against workshops. Like, if, if, you, if you don't have a good workshop matchup, that's a disqualifier. Agreed. And this deck also just happens to have a great matchup against Landstill, which is also hugely popular, and, and I assume that Adrian knew he was going to have to beat some Landstill players to win the event. Yeah, like, I don't really know Adrian, but, like, clearly he knows Vintage. <laughs> so six and seven are Blue Angels. Mike yeah. Egan and Craig Berry. Let's talk about these. There's a lot of stuff in here to talk about. And, and Blue Angels, pretty crazy deck. And Paul, sorry, Paul, ahead. you you uh, rode to the event with one of the developers, Craig, right? Yeah, I guess Craig and Will worked on it together. And they both were in my car. Um, the story I understand is that Mike Egan really needed a deck, and they shared it with him. And I think they were the only two playing it at the event, so it was obviously very well positioned for this event since they both did really well. Steve, I think we should walk through this deck list really quick because this is a this is an unknown quantity here. So, top to bottom, three Restoration Angel, three Vendillion Clip. Four Trinket Mage, three Jace the Mind Sculptor, four Force of Will, 
three spell snare, three mana drain, three mental misstep, two fluster storm, one steel sabotage. Some restricted stuff, thirst, ancestral walk, brainstorm, some utility stuff for the trinkets, a top, a needle, explosives, and cage, and then a mana base that includes cavern. That includes cavern of souls and a full five moxin plus a mana crypt. Yeah, the side I mean, has aetherling. <laughs> yeah, I called that one out specifically both on the mana drain and on Twitter. I think, and the explanation I got was that the aetherling if cast via a cage not cage if cast via a cavern against landstill would be nigh unbeatable but i think you can come up with something better than a six mana creature for that role i don't expect to see aetherlings in many decks going forward (laughs) (laughs) yeah the way it was described to me is it's it's a a better or situationally better morph they said that you can it's a a bigger morphling that's for sure and morphling's not unblockable so yeah it's 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 for like nine or eight (laughs) and it's for eight so that's big it can close a game out if you've got the mana and this deck so, yeah. can reliably get the mana it has academy that Mose and that and what's that that girl from vegas have been talking restoration angel for some time now and now it manifests there it is and yeah. they told me that it's primarily for you use it in like uh it's good to kill jace you could play it on end step and get it in there against their jays and just attack and kill it. So it helps you when other people have jays. And it also helps you mitigate removal cards for your creatures. So if someone tries to destroy your trinket mage and you're like, no, blink it. And then you get another artifact too. So you get these like two for ones with it a lot. Yeah, this deck has lots of synergy built in. And you're right, Steve. I'm pretty sure that Heather immediately saw this list and was eyeing it for a future vintage event. She may be playing it this weekend in Vegas. And I I also won't be surprised to see this deck or one very much like it out at the Team Sirius Open in Ohio, too. Oh, yeah. This, 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 yeah. this tournament's going to affect the metagame for sure. <laughs> you know, this upcoming weekend, GP Vegas, the Team Sirius Open in Sandusky, might be, on the, on, on the day of Saturday, might be the most Restoration Angels played in Vintage ever <laughs> this coming Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, those guys told me that they came up with their deck a similar way that I came up with mine. They were running with the Bomberman list, and they didn't really like playing with the Salvager combo, so they changed it out for Restoration Angel, and then I guess they kind of, you know, beefed up some things like Vendillion Clicks and that kind of thing. Vendillion Click is nasty, and only going to get nastier. <laughs> yeah, this this deck is almost like ahead of the curve for the change in the Legend rule, because they already have this creature that's really good if your opponent gets to keep Jace, and you have to play your own and, like, don't kill theirs. <laughs> so having Restoration Angel in that mix seems awesome. Plus you have multiple Vendillion Clicks, which are probably amazing in this deck. Absolutely. Yeah, I won't be surprised to see future versions of this deck that ratchet up the Jace count to four and ratchet up the click count to four to, to combat that. <laughs> That's crazy. And that brings us to the eighth place deck list, Burning Tendrils, by Bryce Menard. Bryce is playing the Matt Elias variant of my deck in that it has uh, a 12th land, the third gemstone mine, and two repeals over, I think, Windfall and something. No, he has Windfall. Mine's Desire? No, he's got that. I don't know exactly what he cut. Something. Oh, I think there's a, a, a Tinker in memory. Tinker is gone, his memory jar. I would definitely keep Tinker in. Um, I watched Bryce lose game three to the Rug Delver deck. But um, you know, Bryce has some unconventional choices, but overall was a very tight player. He's only one of four people playing this deck, and he made top eight. He said it was his first vintage tournament ever, so that shows you that's pretty insane. Wow. Nice he job. Said, though, the- playing like the hardest deck. <laughs> <laughs> 
But here's the thing. He says he's an expert in Storm and Legacy. I guess it's not Doomsday, but like, yeah, that's a pretty tough <laughs> one to just kind of jump right in with. Yeah. I told him, I said that uh, he said, well, I play. He said, first of all, he thanked me for the deck. I said, oh, you know, you're the one who did, you know, played it. And he said um, that he, you know, I asked him, he said it was his first vintage tournament. I said, well, how did you, how did you do that? And he said, well, he, he plays a lot of Storm and Legacy. I said, but the tactics are very different. And he said, yeah, <laughs> very different. Absolutely. Um, so that was a pretty awesome tournament. Very diverse top eight. You got Workshops, Gush, Dark Ritual Combo, a bunch of crazy Restoration Angel decks, and Paul's sweet metagame Bob Jace deck takes it down. I play against pretty much the whole metagame as you would think of it too like i played against bomberman i played against workshop i played against crazy affinity workshop i played against oath i played against rug i played against land still i i played against like every deck that was in there the only one i lost to was i lost to greg fenton playing show and tell oath which oath is actually a pretty good deck against mine because you have a dark confidence as your draw engine so it kind of like makes you less want to even play those. But you do have Spell Snare, which is nice. And I do have Spell Snare, which is good. And, like, I have some answers. I have Disenchant on the sideboard you, and things like that. But you but don't have things like Cage. You don't have you don't have Nature's Claim. So it's a different... That is definitely one of your weaknesses. But that can be shored up in the future with more Disenchant type effect. It does. And, well, I kind of knew that going in. Yeah. And I just didn't expect to face a lot of the Show and Tell Oath. I felt a little bit better against the uh, the Burning Wish Oath because I had the Thought Seasons and things like that. Yeah. I think yeah. Spell Snare is really good against that version. Yeah, definitely good against my deck. Yeah. Um, Paul, I wanted to um, bring something to your attention. Earlier in the podcast, Kevin and I were talking about how this year is kind of like a, a, a really important, historically significant year because the, the two tournaments sort of represent the community taking ownership of the format's marquee events, which sort of completes the circle from Vidaminia. And and uh, as I was working through my chapters, I found something really cool. So, Paul, you and I met in the fall of 2000 when I got back in, and I put together a keeper, and you put together Kaibu's uh, Tricks deck, which is the, you know, the progenitor to the Burning Tendrils deck. And you just crushed my keeper deck. And you played, you played that. Well, here's the funny part. I, I think that kind of lit a fire under your ass a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> like you were like, okay, well, you just wait. I'm going to come back with some really good decks. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I, it really did. I would became much more driven to discover new decks and figure stuff out. Yeah, for yeah. sure. It really drove a lot of my interest on Beta Minia, etc. But here's where I'm going with this. Uh, I found a report from Kevin, Mr. Kevin Crone, 2001 Origins report. I want I want to read to you an excerpt from this. Are you ready? Okay. Round one. Paul on tricks. <laughs> 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 First turn duress reveals from him fa uh, factor fiction reveals from him factor fiction drain force will he takes factor fiction uh, he says you time twister and then you draw on the time tw mind twist Kevin draws into mind twist for seven wow he <laughs> mind twisted you for seven welcome to two thousand. <laughs> <laughs> In game two, okay, this is really cool. This is Kevin. I cast Ivory Mask in the mid game. He forces, leaving one card in hand. He draws up to two. I cast Cap, but can't pop it. He's talking about Jester's Cap. Right. He's holding Illusions, but I don't know it. He vamp tutors and draws Donate. Cast Illusion. I cap and don't see Donate number two. He wins because I sided out Zorb. So. <laughs> <laughs> I am upset by all this, but the general mood of the match keeps me from making negative emotional mistakes. Plus, I can't really complain after the mind twist in game one. 
Game three. <laughs> <laughs> this game was nominal for both of us. I wasted a few early lands and simply countered big threats. Bargain, if memory serves. He expends too much of his hand and is top decking when I have three plus cards. Notables. Paul is fun, as is his entourage of friends. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps I'm just saying this because his buddy declared that the winner of our match will get the last of their supply of Smirnoff ice. <laughs> <laughs> I remember this now. Guys, I don't know your names, but that ice was excellent. That was Balak. Call, call, wait, listen to the rest of this. This is hilarious. Paul caught some slack from his friends for not playing optimally. Case in point, he had Academy and Will in his hand with a bunch of artifacts in play, and he chose to play the Academy and wait a turn before Will, but I wasted it, and he didn't have enough gas to make his Will a winner. His decision with... Anyway, he's saying you should have won that match. But the funniest part about this is that Kevin had never met you, and I... <laughs> And reading this now, I, I asked, I called Kevin up the other day. I was like, Kevin, did you play Paul Mastriano in round one of this Origins tournament in 2001? <laughs> <laughs> he said, That can only be me. Yeah. It can only be you. Yep. <laughs> and this is funny because Paul and I already known each other and we're friends. And Kevin, you and I, I don't know if we'd met yet, but you met Paul before I met you, I think. Yeah. And I remember that uh, that particular round vividly because it was only partway through the round that your entourage showed up with their cooler. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now keep in mind we're at the Origins Gaming Expo, right? <laughs> walk up, open up the cooler, put this last bottle of Smirnoff ice on the table, and say, "All right, the winner gets this." <laughs> <laughs> we were already having a good time but that really put the capper on it <laughs> also That's, how what year was that steve 2001 yeah how 2000 is that that i lo I, I actually stated in that tournament report that i lost because i cited out zurin orb <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> what were you thinking i know right <laughs> won't make that mistake next time <laughs> zurin orb is so good against tricks Great stuff. But there you go. I mean, um, there I am in 2001, still running Yawgmoth's will. Uh -huh. <laughs> that, and that may have been the last time in recorded history that you didn't play aggressively. <laughs> yeah, that, it might be. <laughs> you learned your lesson well. Learned a thing or two. Well, Paul, congratulations on your win for the inaugural NYSE Open. I think this event not only reflects your preparation and your, and your play very well, but also reflects well on the format in general. And people are yeah, going to be looking at your deck specifically going forward, especially leading into the Eternal Weekend. Paul, and I also want to thank you for uh, helping us win those team trophies. They look really oh, yeah, sweet. Awesome. They look really sweet. And I'm getting... V Visna is, her is sending the... Uh, the inscription that's going to go on one side of the plaque that says, there is no I in team, but there is a we in weapon. weapon. <laughs> <laughs> the trophy I won has the uh, the last word quote on it. It says, um, someday someone will best me, but it won't be today and it won't be you. Uh, so, Paul, just so real quickly, tell us what you won. Tell us oh. what Wow, I won the Black Lotus, which is a really nice condition Black Lotus for a prize. Like, one of the better Lotuses I've won. And 
I won a foil goblin welder from original legacy set just because I didn't play with proxies. I was the highest. <laughs> I also was the highest finishing player without proxies. Nice. <laughs> and um, I won anyway. And then I got that really awesome Karn that's altered to look like New York is behind him. It's like super sick. If anyone so that was, if anyone wants to see that car, and it was posted in the original tournament announcement on the Manadrain, and it's awesome. It's like unbelievable how I looked at it a couple of times before I realized that the artist had to paint the legs on. It looks like that was part of the card too. You know what I mean? Like it was supposed to be that way. It's pretty seamless. So I like, yeah, really well done. I want a really big trophy. Uh, I got my team trophy. So yeah, it was the, pretty the, good. The, the trophy you won is awesome, and it's it's inspired by. Ayn Rand philosophy of Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> it, it, that quote is incredible for a trophy. That's awesome. Yeah, I always liked the last word quote before it was on my trophy. So, pretty cool. But yeah, anyway, I did want to say that I'm also working on a podcast. It's going to be called Eternal Witness Underground. We're going to be talking about vintage and legacy with my friend Doug. So, that'll be, that's coming soon. I'm also working on a card game, so that's on the horizon. I got to test Paul's card game, and it's really sweet. It's, yeah. it's got a lot of interesting mechanics, and it, and it really makes you think. Yes, yeah, so I'm working on, working on getting art on that, and it's going to be pretty sweet when that gets all done. So, a lot of cool things coming up for me. I'm looking forward to the vintage weekend i know that nick cost will do it justice so i think that's going to be cool yeah we have one more we have one more segment here paul would you just stick around for us real quick while we go through this this is a we want to just talk for a minute about m14 rules changes all right awesome well let's dig in so steve the most important one in my opinion for vintage is the legendary rule do you want to go to that one first or do you want to talk about the sideboard your, your choice well let's get the sideboard out of the way so for those of you who haven't heard and i, I imagine it's very few of you you can now have any number of cards up to 15 in your sideboard as long as your deck and sideboard total 75. So right. what this functionally means is that there's no penalty now for having 14 cards in your sideboard and 76 in your deck. They did away with I those kind of penalties. You even need, I don't think you even need 75 anymore. You could play with like a 10-card sideboard now, I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. So it's a maximum, up to a maximum of 75. Yeah. And, but the key well, is you, no, you don't really have to... You can have a maximum of 15 in your sideboard. You can have like a million card deck. If you want. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out. Yes, Battle of Wits <laughs> players will be chiding me for getting that wrong. So yeah. it, you don't have to exchange one for one between games, which is the kind of penalty that was really pedantic and caught players off guard a lot of the time. And so sometimes now, if you're in game two and you realize that you've sideboarded the incorrect number of cards per se, there is not actually a penalty for that going forward. And it also opens up some interesting strategic corner cases, but I don't think too many vintage decks will be making use of those corner cases. Yeah, so the sideboard thing ultimately would just save a lot of game losses. Yeah, a lot of technicalities. (laughs) They're game losses for like doing something stupid. Doing something (laughs) something stupid that also has no tactical advantage. Like yeah, like generally you're you're doing yourself wrong by just jamming extra cards in your deck. So it's worth noting that you do still have to play with a minimum of a sixty card deck. So you cheat in that direction, but still. I I think it's worth pointing out though that this deck actually helps burning tendrils because they're burning tendrils pilots who forget to decideboard when you burning (laughs) push. You are. But you are still required to reset your deck for game one of the next round. Yes, That's a different kind of penalty, but 
to your point, it does open up some options with a deck that's so based on its sideboard that you don't... Uh, there are certain situations where I can see you wouldn't want to exchange one for one going into game two or three with a Burning Tendrils deck. But it will definitely be the smaller impact of the M14 rules changes because the legendary rule has lots of Im- uh, implications with regard to commonly played cards in Vintage, which we've already touched on. Yeah. And the rule, in summary, is simply that the current Legends rule basically only applies to the purview of one player's control. That is, if I have a Vendillion click and play, you can also have a Vendillion click and play. And also, what's better, if I play a second Vendillion click, I get to choose which of the two that I control temporarily gets to stay in play and which one I have to sacrifice. What what do you guys, do you guys like this rule or not? I think it's good. I'm fine with it. Yeah, from a play standpoint, it works well. I actually love it. I'm not just fine with it. I love it. Love it, love it, love it. The thing that, that bothers me the most about Vintage, one of the things that bothers me the most about, about Jace in particular is the fact that when you play a Jace, it is so hard to come at, back out of it when your strategy is Jace. And this just allows... You remember how people used to play like Factor Fiction and Gifts and be like, I Gifts, now you Gifts, now I Gifts, now you Gifts, or I Fact, you Fact. And you could just keep up. Well, with Jace, you can't do that. When you, their person, when your opponent gets their Jace, you can't even do anything about it. They Jace storm their head. The only thing your Jace does is kill theirs. And then they can just play another next turn. Now everyone gets Jace. So right. I think Sometimes that, I really want to kill their Jace, though, with mine. <laughs> like when my plan is to tinker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I, I love the fact that that a Jace can't lock you out of your Jace. Like I agree turn, with that. And we can, one Jace then it becomes who plays the Jace better, which I like that exactly, aspect of it a lot. Exactly. I love who it. Who gets more utilization? Who picks the better ability? I, you know, you can also do little tempo plays, too. Like if I'm playing a Dark Confidant and you have to start bouncing it with your Jace to keep me from drawing extra cards, then... My Jace is going to be insane. Yes. And yours be terrible. Yes. <laughs> I think that's so, so important. So I love, I think one, early Jace can be one of the like most like demoralizing things in the format. But if your opponent goes Lotus Land Jace, it's really demoralizing when you're playing a blue deck. Now, you can actually just answer that with the same play. Like, you know, or a turn two Jace and get back in there. So I love it. In addition to Jace, the probably the second biggest impact on the format is going to be the impact on Metamorph. And I'm of the opinion that this change writes something of a wrong specific to Metamorph with regard to using it as removal. A lot of people, as you said already, Paul, a lot of people like the ability to remove certain cards with the Legends rule. But it really the, the fact that Metamorph was able to kill so many key Legends in the format really gave Workshops and a tactic that mono brown decks at least weren't ever really meant to have from a from a game design standpoint but it does and it does mean now that workshop pilots are going to lose some key outs to certain plays that they currently rely on yeah well metamorph i think was one of the cards that had really pushed workshop to where it is now it was like one of the last printings that really brought it together yep especially definitely affects it negatively the thing though is i will say this on in terms of gristlebrand metamorph on gristlebrand that definitely seems to help burning tendrils because they can't just murder your gristlebrand but on the other hand they can draw a ton of cards now with metamorph so it's it's hard to say who has the advantage there but i i think overall now that they can't just murder your you know your legend with it i think that probably gives a slight advantage to the burning long deck yeah I don't know. The The whole thing with Metamorph, I guess, is people complain that the new rule is a bit of a flavor fail, 
But at the same time, like, so the metamorph thing, like, I can kill your guy by making a copy of it is not a flavor fail. Or, yeah. like, <laughs> it doesn't even the idea sense. that I use Jace to kill your Jace, like, I understand, like, there could be only one of a legend, but why, why flavor-wise did they kill each other before, like, yeah. some kind of time anything, paradox? If anything, if, anything if you're trying to preserve the flavor, the rule should be that you can't even cast the second one, right? Which was the original rule. Exactly. And so once we've kind of deviated from that, I think it's okay to go this way. This way is a little bit more intuitive as well, I think. Yeah. It's click. The game in general. Click gets, I think, a lot better. Yeah, yeah, click did get a lot better. For multiple reasons. The legend rule itself with regard to clicks on clicks means that you don't lose yours just because your opponent played one. But vis-a-vis Jace, click is now one of the best ways. It was before, but it's now even more reliable as a way to remove your opponent's Jaces. And when both players have a Jace, you want to be the player that has access to something that gets rid of theirs. Well, the marginal value... Yeah, you're you're about to say what I was going to say. Yeah, go go ahead. Click has a spell-like effect, and being able to just jam another one down there to get the spell-like effect again, the duress, Mm -hmm. sort of, is very relevant to just be able to play two of that effect sometimes. Yeah, one of the limitations, that's why people play like two or three clicks in Legacy. I think we're going to see like four four click decks now. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, the click benefits in all possible ways from this legendary rule. It's better (laughs) in multiples on your side of the table now because of the spell-like effect. It's better when your opponent has them because you get to keep yours now. And it's better vis-a-vis all these other cards that get better, like Jace. That, that, so, yeah, I think that four clicks is going to become a thing in Vintage if it isn't by the by the time this rule comes out. Academy and Gaius Cradle also get a lot of press over this, this rule. I'll, I'll just say one thing about the Academy thing. I love the fact now, again, this inures to the benefit of Burning Tendrils, that your opponent, your workshop opponent, can't play an Academy to Wasteland Yord. So it, it really takes them down to five Wasteland effects now. Or to preemptively Wasteland it. Or preemptively, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And the, like cut it off as an out. And on the flip like, side, A lot of Steve, times Academy is an out. Oh, yeah. That's true. And on the flip side, we've got a deck for the first time in quite a while. For the first time since Riley Curran's Elves deck, we got a deck with multiple Gaius Cradles in the top eight here. That deck can now play a second Cradle and get all the benefit from it, thanks to this rule change as well. Oh, and that deck wants to do that real bad. Yep. <laughs> it's going to have like eight workshops. <laughs> <laughs> so we have Gaius Cradle, some untouched technology and vintage that I think like Mike can explore it a little bit more now because of this rule. Hasn't Gray's Cradle just shut up to like 100 bucks or something? More than that, yeah. It's crazy. I can see it going higher. It's crazy. (laughs) Isn't the foil one like a test print thing too? No, it was was released as an actual promo. There were other test print foil cradles, but it was legitimately released. Okay, so that's probably going to be like like, like 1.5 million a piece or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they quickly shot up to $300 and I haven't checked inside of the last few days, but they're probably over 300 now. Yeah, I didn't know foils cost less than five or six hundred dollars. So that is so crazy. That is so crazy. Magic prices are ridiculous. Congratulations, <laughs> Paul. You won like just as the market exploded. <laughs> well, like the value of your every time like, I win Black Lotus, it's worth more money. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, I know players are going to be curious for your thoughts on Mox Opal. Are you going to increase the number in Burning Oath because of this rule change? The right number of, of Mox Opal in Burning Tendrils probably still two. Um, I think if you were running one, you probably want to try two now. Um, the marginal value of Mox Opal definitely goes up. So I'll just talk a little bit about Mox Opal, that, what I do. A lot of times, if I'm in a situation I will where I have a decision as to what I'm going to tinker away, I will tinker away Mox Opal 
like the first card, even though it's often better than another artifact in play, just because there's a good chance that if I'm tinkering or doing something else, you might I'm going. It. Yeah, I'm gonna find the second one exactly. Um, I'll also, you know, there are other things I'll do with Mox Opal like that. Um, I think this just obviously makes Mox Opal better and stronger overall. I love it. Definitely strengthens Burning Tendrils, but still the number one limitation on Mox Opal, not close as metal. craft. Yeah. <laughs> And, and that having more Mox Opals does not change that equation. In fact, every Mox Opal you add has the potential to reduce your ability to get Metalcraft because it's not a draw spell that finds another artifact or and it potentially takes the place of another artifact. And so two I think in you your have hand to, without Metalcraft is still bad. <laughs> exactly. So I think I think two. Uh, I've done. I'll, I'll just tell you a couple. In the last couple months, I have had. You know, I've been constantly tinkering and fiddling with my list and in the last since april or might have been march and april i had a card that was a grid card in my deck <laughs> i think i mentioned this before but it was imperial seal regrowth empty the warrens second mox opal um ancient tomb you name it it was just like every card that you could that card is pretty good <laughs> Foxies, yeah Fox. and, and every game i played i would i would uh check off next to the the name there were 10 cards on there which card was best and Thoughtseize and Mox Opal were by far the best, and Mox Opal had the highest tally. So running into the, the last Vacaville, or the Eudaimonia tournament, I played the second Mox Opal in that slot. And, and the uh, M14 decision, I think, just reinforces that. It's it's probably, unless you're going to do some other tech, Mox second Mox Opal, I think, is, is where you want to go post-M14. You know, Steve, as you were talking about constructing that deck that way, I was just stricken by the fact that we've got a whole list of cards here that get better because of this Legends rule. Maybe we should just make a deck that has four Jace and f- four Clicks <laughs> and four Opals and four Gaius Cradles and <laughs> just, you know, see if we can maximize the utility of M14. Well, you, you know, you're joking, but there is something to be said that subtle rules effects can actually have profound change, uh, you know, effects. Absolutely. We don't yet know what it's like for four Vendillion Clicks to be a commonplace thing in the metagame. That could have some far-reaching impacts. I wonder how long they've known in R&D. <laughs> Quite a while, I expect. Yeah, remember when they were talking about getting rid of Mana Burn? Mark Rosewater had talked about that for years, you know, that they wanted to get rid of Mana Burn. But it took, it took a long time for that to happen. So I imagine I'm they've known for a year or more. Because Mana opens a lot of space in design, right? It changes design a lot. Well, I think that when we do our next uh, podcast about a set review... We're going to be talking, well, we'll talk about M14 more, but we'll talk about Theros, and we're probably going to harken back to how the Legends rule has impacted so many of those cards. I'm going to take the liberty of just launching out our closing question. What is the most important change from M14 rule? We'll ask, and I think that the way we, we want to phrase that question is, we don't just mean like, do you think the Legend rule is more important or the sideboard, but what particular effect or card in, in Vintage or deck is going to be the most important change as a result of the M14. So we'll let our listeners weigh in on that, and um, and we will probably we'll be back with you to um, do scenarios very soon, and we'll do an M14 set review and discuss any changes to the ban and restricted. Yeah, we get a lot of feedback about how our listeners like scenarios, and we're listening and we hear it, and so we're going to do it again soon. We've got a, a great list of compiled scenarios. Definitely. I want to say thanks to Paul for joining us. Congratulations again on your win, and we love having you on the show, Paul. Yeah, no problem. It was a good time. Great to talk to you, Paul. All, all right. Cool. Thank you for listening to episode 26 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays. You can email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays.
Ik heb het niet. 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 Ik heb het niet.